You're listening to the Desperation Podcast, a generation in desperate pursuit of God. www.desperationonline.com. chapter 7. It's intriguing because it's the culmination of where history ends up. Verse 9 reads like this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. In front of the Lamb and Right in front of Jesus, the lamb that was slain for the sin of the world, there will be a great multitude from every tongue, tribe, and nation of which no one could count. It's not a question of maybe, it's a question of when. There will be a day that there will be a great multitude. And that idea of which no one could count is pretty massive. If you go to a Broncos game or you go to a college football game or They'll tell you the amount of people that are there. It's usually less than 100,000. and It's measurable. It's countable. I remember going in 2000 and seeing 350,000 people, according to the newspaper. It was countable. 350,000 was more than my eyes could see. I don't know if you have ever seen on TV when they have, you know, the big days in Rome near the Vatican where, there's such a huge crowd that you, it's like it's like it just looks just massive. Those are countable. There is going to be a massive victory before the Lamb that was slain. The Lamb that was slain, this man Jesus, who decided to redeem a people and come to the earth, die on a cross, raise from the dead, mobilize a few. Disciples to, de- to declare the gospel and then ascend to heaven and tell them to go and take that gospel to the world. He gets the world. You know, back then there was about one to, when you look at right after the early church started in Acts, if you were to take a few thousand or added to their number, says in Acts, got what looks like a great multitude of people that come quickly to the gospel. And so some of, the, some of the theologians guess that if you were to take how many people were on the earth in that day compared to how many Christians there were, there would be about one uh, Christian for every 350 non-believers. And so that seems like a doable task to reach those 350. If you were to do that same study today, um, it would not be one Christian for every 350 people be one Christian for every seven that don't know Jesus. So we've gained some ground in the last 2,000 years. And we're only going to continue to gain ground. The lamb that was slain does win. He is victorious. This thing doesn't end in disaster. It ends with him victorious. He's already defeated sin and Satan forever. And he wins. So you serve a Jesus that is victorious. You serve a Jesus that wins. Tonight, I want to talk about our role, your role, 
as a missionary, your role as a heralder, your role as a bold proclaimer of the gospel. We've completed now for a number of months a handful of prayer meetings. And many of, many of you have developed a devotional life uh, far better than what you've ever had in your life. You've been in an accountability group where someone's called you to spend time with Jesus. We've kind of told you what books we want to encourage you to read. And, and so you've had a devotional life, been in accountability, sat in some prayer meetings. Many of you have prayed the scriptures more than ever, so you have some working experiences with verses that they're more than merely ideas that a preacher preaches at you, but instead they've got life in them because you can connect them to moments that you've had with the Lord. All of those things are strategic and one of our great passions is that you would, that you would encounter God, that you would know God. But we don't come to know God and have it end there. You don't come to know God and have that be the conclusion. God has called a people, preserved a people, all throughout the Bible and all throughout history, and and drawn them to himself in order that they might know him and then proclaim him. In order that they might become, in a sense, bold witnesses of the gospel. And you and I... Uh, are often tempted to take in the enjoyable knowing of God, the sitting with the United Hillsong worship in the background and the new Max Lucado book, have a devo, and that's where it ends. But it's never created to end that way. We are heralders. We go, we, we not only say yes to Jesus, but we say yes to his mission. And when you say yes to the Lamb's mission, you become about the Lamb and about what He's about. And over the next few weeks, the final few weeks that we have for many of you in the furnace, uh, as far as what's mandatory, I want to talk about this mission of the Lamb. The mission of the Lamb that was slain. The mission of the Lamb that went to a cross. The mission of the Lamb who will receive a great reward. His mission and what it looks like for us today, right now. You can go all throughout the scriptures, and when you go from all throughout the Old Testament, we find that God decides to bless a people, but he doesn't bless a people merely because, in his kindness, he just wants to bless them. He actually blesses them for a purpose that's ongoing. He blesses them that they would be a blessing. A lot of times we've heard some people kind of take that and misuse it and talk about how God wants to bless us and we think specifically of God wants to give us money and cars or God wants to give you a bigger house. God wants to bless you. Well, even if you look at that root word bless, when you take that Hebrew word, this isn't uh, uh, the way that we would refer to it. This word blessing, this word blessing would be, it's the word barak, it would mean either blessing or relationship. And so I, I prefer for us in our context, if we want to really understand it, we would see that God is saying, I want a relationship with you that you might have relationship with other people, that I might get to know other people through you, that you you might be an extension of my light, that you might be an extension of the good news of who I am. So over and over again, we find the God of Israel being declared because the God of Israel was bigger than all the other gods. And God decided to bless a people so that those people would bless others. And so that's what he says to Abraham. He's going to make him a blessing. And then this blessing of Israel 
that they might become a blessing, that they might, the God of Israel might be declared in the whole earth. And when you could go right through the Bible and find different statements where you'll see this God is on a mission. He's on a mission that people might know him and see that he is God. That he is, like we sang about, the God of all gods. That he is the Lord of all lords. That he is the king of all kings. And you can imagine that even in that day, there were all kinds of lesser gods. Gods that were idols. Gods that they worshipped. But God was about the people of Israel proclaiming that he is God to the known world. One of my favorite stories to use because it's so common to us. Because we've grown up in Sunday school is to talk about David and Goliath. Because we know the story. And so I don't have to take you through a story you don't know. You know the story of David and Goliath, right? You know the story of the little shepherd boy that took the sling and killed the bad guy, Goliath. And usually we take that and we say, see, God wants to kill the bad things in your life. You just got to have faith and believe. And the bad things, you know, the good Israelites will take out the bad Philistines. But that's not at all what's going on there. What's going on there is that God waits until his people are, you know, in the back of the corner. I mean, it's like the 14th round. I mean, Rocky's down. It look, I mean, it looks like it's going to take a miracle. And that he uses a little boy to come out of nowhere and say, what? He gives the motive. David standing before Goliath. He does say why. He doesn't say, hey, I'm going to you know, take you out so that I can show my brothers that I've, I have intimacy with God. He doesn't say, hey, I'm going to take you out so that they can put it in the, in the Bible. He doesn't say, hey, I'm going to take you out so, you know, so that we can all know that Philistines are bad, Israelites are good. That's not what happens. No, God is using the Israelite people to declare to the Philistine world to Israel and to all the nations of the world that there is a God in Israel, there is one true God. And David, I mean, right about to take out Goliath, he gives the motivation. He gives the reason. 1 Samuel 17, verse 46 says, you can read it. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Which I love that about David. He looks straight in, into Goliath's face. He goes, whom you've defied, little sucker. Come here, little guy. It's actually very similar to the way that Paul talks. I mean, to the way that uh, Peter talks in Acts 2. When Peter's saying, uh, talking about Jesus, and he says, whom you crucified. Whom you mock. Then David says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you. And take your head from you. Now, just put aside all the VeggieTale movies that you've seen. Put aside all the little picture books that you've seen. And realistically engage with me in a small man. Imagine, if you can, a very small man. Close your eyes. Don't look at me. I know you're picturing it. You're like, it's very easy to imagine. I'm staring at one. Uh, but imagine a very small guy standing before a guy that's nine feet tall, looking at him and saying, I will strike you down and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air, the wild beasts of the earth. Why? Here it is. That. Say that. That from now on, people might, might be motivated that when they face debt, they can overcome and they can pay off their debt. No. 
That, that when people are in a struggling time, they can use this as a metaphor to try to say that they can be victorious. No. What's the motive of David's heart? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That the whole world... See, there's a lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world, and he will receive a great reward of his suffering, and so that everyone will know he's decided to put his hand on a small guy in Israel to declare to you as a people that my God is bigger than your God, and that he is real. Why? Because he wants to smite you? No, because actually, he wants all the nations to know. He It's actually defeating Goliath that even the Philistines might know there is a God in Israel. So God uses Israel to tell the whole world who he is. When the cards are stacked against the little guy, God goes, this is my opportunity to declare to on earth use someone that they go, that had to be God. And you can go right through the Old Testament. And the stories of Israel over and over and over are epic. Why? Because those days were more epic than these days? Not at all. Why? Because God was setting up to where people would read this forever. The people in that day would go, there is no way that Israel, this little tiny nation, could be that powerful. God must be in their midst. And we have story after story that is bizarre. God, using this little group of people, Israel, to bless, to barak, to be a representative, to relate, to declare who God is. That he is big. That he is real. And that he's bigger than all other gods. Hallelujah. That when Brandon Bustamani sings, Lord of lords and God of gods, it's not just this pretty poetic music. You find it same to be true with Moses. And interesting what God says about Egypt. He says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment, for I am the Lord. All the gods of Egypt? Do you know, it wasn't the God when, you know, I know all of you are familiar with the nine plagues for God, over and over again, goes and some of you know because you've read your Bible and some of you know because you watched Prince of Egypt when you were in eighth grade. (laughs) But most of the time, what we walk away with from that story, of course, Joe Couch's generation saw Charleston Heston, right? The Ten Commandments. I'm just kidding. I'm actually older older than Joe. But anyway, most of us think, well, what that is, is that's, that's God taking the Israelites because he hates the Egyptians, right? He's going to hurt the Egyptians. He's chosen the Israelites. He's going to smash the the Egyptians. No. Even Egypt, even Egypt in taking Israel captive finds out that there's a bigger God than their little gods in Egypt. God's not coming in and demonstrating nine different plagues 
because he wasn't sure that that one worked. So here's plan two, here's plan three, here. That doesn't work, here's some flies, that didn't work. Here's some frogs, that didn't work. Here, make the sun go dark, that didn't work. Turn the Nile to blood, no, that didn't work. Here's some locusts, that's not what's going on. Those, those nine different plagues were all nine different Egyptian gods. And he's just God saying, I'm, I'm bigger than your gods. So they had the God of Hype, the God of the Niles. God says, watch this. Hype, I'll turn it to blood. Hequit. Symbolized, one of the Egyptian gods, symbolized by frogs. God goes, you like frogs? I'll give you more frogs and you know what to do with <laughs> They would worship the sun. Call it the God, the God Ra, R-A. God goes, all right. I love total darkness. They would worship the Pharaoh. And God says, all right, I'll take out the firstborn son. No Pharaoh, bigger than me. Why? Because he wants to smite Egypt? No. No, God decides to use a people to declare to all nations, to everyone, big and he is huge and friends most of us I don't say this in anger I just say this because of the culture that we've grown up in a few generations of Christianity go by and we get used to the methods that you know our spiritual grandparents used to do and they had motive and they had mission and they were Christ followers that said this is how we're going to invade the city and we're going to put you know churches on every neighborhood corner and now we make fun of them like they sing hymns and you know wear robes and act old and rah, and because it's cultural to us but it used to be a mission it used to be what if we had a people of god represented in every neighborhood in america and whether you're a baptist presbyterian nazarene foursquare or whatever let's go for it but you and i we get the privilege in 2009 of saying, God, not resurrect the mission of old, but God, I'm on your mission. What are you doing today? Keith Green used to talk about how every generation of Christians is responsible for the generation of Christians on the earth at that time. And we will one day stand before God. You will one day stand before God. And not just did you know me, but did you declare he's the God of how did you become the expression of declaring, heralding, saying, living, blogging, whatever medium possible, the glories of God, the excellencies of Christ? I think, um, I think that sometimes we we like the idea of God saving us obviously from hell and we like the idea of God setting us free from addictions and sometimes we skew it so that God can give us a better life and it ends there following God does give you a better life but not just because temporary pleasures get better but because you're on mission with the Lamb and you love him and you do enjoy him. 
and you care about what he cares about. And he cares about more than just you. He really does. He cares that there's a great multitude of which no one can count from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And you play a role to see that he gets it. Because he will. Sometimes in our cultures, I have found that we, that part is invasive. Because that part means sacrifice. If I can just sing some Christian songs, give 10%, you know, marry a Christian spouse and raise some Christian kids and be done and call that glorifying God, cool. But if God says, sacrifice everything, 100% is mine. And God says, join with me in seeing that there's a great multitude from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And God says, take up your cross and follow me. And God says, I'm about all nations knowing. Well, that gives us a compelling vision that forces us to live in a sacrificial way. And that's the part we like to push off. Ever heard this? Psalm 67. May may God be gracious to us and bless us. And make his face shine upon us. Let's say it together. You know it. Let's say it together. May God be gracious to us and bless us. And make his face shine upon us. Selah. Right? That's what we say. We stop there. Psalm 67.1. It's a good verse, isn't it? I mean, that's a great thing. That's a good, God bless us. And even that word we just started, God have relationship with us. Make your face shine upon us. And most of us take that and go, yes, that's it. I'm one of God's kids. He wants to bless me. He wants to make his face shine upon me. Sorry for you, bud, but God wants to bless me. Let me just keep reading. Because there's a, That's not even the end of the sentence. That's all we know. That's all we quote. I mean, I've never heard the rest. I just hear, may God bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. And that's it. I mean, sometimes people make jokes about it. Like, you know, I've heard people say, may God bless you and keep you and, you know, make his face shine upon the Sooners. I mean, but, you know, we've had things like that where we add some stuff like that. But I mean, as far as the actual rest of the psalm, you know what it says? It says, may God, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Here it is. It's not even done yet. I mean, it's not even the end of the sentence. Why? It's the big that. It's the same way David said that God would be made, in, uh, made known among the nations. Here's a big that right there. I mean, right here, the psalmist isn't done. It's just a, it's a, what is the big motivation? Why would God bless us and make his face shine upon us? That your ways may be known in all the earth. Your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the people, all, all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the peoples justly and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. I mean, how many times are we hitting on this? Let's count them. That you may be known on the earth. One, your salvation among the nations. Two, may the peoples, three, praise you, O God. May your peoples, four, praise you. May the nations, five, be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the peoples, six, and guide the nations, seven, of the earth, eight. May the peoples, nine, praise you, O God. May all the peoples, ten, praise you. Then the land will yield its harvest. Our God, our God will bless us. God will bless us. And all the ends of the earth, eleven, will fear him. Holy smokes, Psalm 67 isn't about you getting a little blessing. The bo- I mean, it's kind of cute, you know? 
It's like 11 times peoples, nations, ends of the earth. Why would God bless us? Same thing he said to Abraham, that you would be a blessing. Doesn't stop with us. Oh, I love it. Don't get me wrong. I love the Bible coming alive. I love the prayer moment. I love moments where we're worshiping and it's just like, you know, the presence of God and we feel close to him and all that. But if it ends there, then we're not on the mission of Jesus. We're on the mission of ourselves and we use Jesus as a means to our end, which we call happiness. Sing the song with me. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Now sing it with me. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Now you hear that song. Some of you know it. Some of you don't. But it is a song. I didn't make it up. (laughs) There's a problem though. There's a problem with that song. See, it's kind of cool because it's like, when you hear that song, it's like, be still, do nothing. Know that I'm God. Just Just be still. Just be still. Know that I'm God. And in that we think, not revolt against the devil. We think, resign, everything's okay. But can I give you what the rest of that is, Psalm 46? Because that's like the first phrase of the verse. Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Psalm 46 is saying, hey, listen, you're on mission. You're declaring God and you've got good days and bad days. But be still and know this. I am God and I will make known. I will myself known to the earth. You're on mission. You're giving it everything you've got. No, I will do it. And when you're, you've spent all of your energy and like the fuel, you've spent all that you have. No, I am still working and I'm going to get the job done. Not be still and hang out for everything's okay. Chill out and blog because all is fine. No. No, it's Jesus. It's God saying, be still and know. I'm God. I will make myself. So David, here's the question. If God's going to be known in the earth, there's going to be a great multitude of which no one can count from every tongue, tribe, and nation. If Jesus, who is all-powerful, has already decided to do it, and history's already been written because God said he's going to do it, why not pull up a beach chair, order an O'Doul's, and hang out? Why not? Go near the pool, pull out my iPod, my Mac, surf the web, spend hours on Facebook chilling, man. Why give my life in a sacrificial way if God's already going to do it? Why? Why? Look at David. Let's go back to David. 1 Samuel 17. 
Look at this. We'll go to verse, I want to read for, for uh, 47 again. 46. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. I just love that. Imagine if we had some men that talked that way. We do. We have a guy in Mexico that says, kill the devil. It's the same idea. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. We need him here in America, though. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and the whole world. And the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed, or another version says overcame, which I just like because it's a desperation dance song. So David overcame. David triumphed over the Philistine with the sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine, killed him. That's usually where we stop. You know, that's where the VeggieTales stops. That's where Superbook stops. That's where the flannel graph story stops. That's where the Christian t-shirts stop. But look at what happens to David. David ran over. Okay, so go, wait, let me, let me get this. And killed him. Let me get this clear. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. Is Goliath dead or alive? Let me try that again. I only got three of you. Is Goliath dead or alive? All right. When David ran and stood over him, he's already dead. He took hold of the Philistine sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he didn't say after he killed him. So he's already dead. Just making sure we got this right. After he killed him, he cut off his head with his sword. Ah! Dead man on the ground. David's already killed him. Whoop, 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 whoop. Dead. Pulls out the sword. Cuts off his head after he's dead. Crazy man. Ferocious. He was, I mean, we're talking about a warrior here. When the Philistines saw that their hero, that's interesting, hero, Bible uses the word hero, was dead, they turned and ran. Here's the intriguing thing. When we gain great victories in God, and many come to Jesus, Many flee. Run away. Look at this. This is interesting. Verse 52. So imagine. Their hero's dead. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the way, along the Sherem road to Gath and Ekron. When the Philistines returned from chasing the Philistines, when the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines. They plundered the camp. 
So imagine this moment where for 40 days, Goliath has come out and pestered the Israelite army. You know, send out someone to fight me. You weenies, you wimps, come on. Send me at someone, I'll feed, you know, their flesh to the birds. So imagine these guys, how much they hate this man. Their lives are in danger, and we know this is a Bible story, so we think of it mostly as kind of a Bible story. We think of it as almost like a children's story. But in reality, this is a major, major army threatening Israel and if the Philistines win, they enslave Israel. So these guys are picturing their wives, their sons, and their daughters. This is a major military uh, war going on right here. And when, when Goliath comes to taunt for 40 days, you can bet those guys are like, Ugh, I hate that guy. I mean, imagine there's the valley between them. And imagine day after day after day, Hey, suckers, come on, weenies. If you're a man, that's not good to hear all day long for 40 days. You start to... So, when Goliath goes down, in that moment, there's guaranteed victory. In that moment, in that moment, they know God has delivered us. God is with us. Little tiny David just defeated big old huge Goliath. This is a miracle moment. God is with us. And it says they surged forward. Imagine the absurdity of a warrior 40 days in the taunting, listening. And the moment where David kills Goliath. Oh, God is with us. God is for us. We can win. We're going to defeat these guys. God has delivered them into our hands. Y'all go ahead. I'm going to hang here and eat some bread and cheese. Dude, come on, man. That's all right. That's all right. I'll sit this one out. I know this is what we've been, you know, living for. I know this is the the victory is ours. I know God's going to give it to us. Y'all go ahead. I'll stay here and eat. I'll blog a little bit. Try to get some more friends on Facebook. Oh, the absurdity of that, right? Because in that moment, God has given us the victory. The very great, I mean, when you return to the camp as well as when you stand before the king, is you have the privilege of going and taking out the enemy. That's your great moment. That's where you're like, we win. You don't look at the fact that we have guaranteed victory and go, I'll sit back. No, the very nature of the knowledge that victory is at hand is what motivates you to go, I want to play a significant role. I'm going to go get me some of them Philistines. That's what goes on in the heart of a warrior. That's what goes on in the one who wants to protect his wife and children. That's what goes on in the heart of a warrior who's been trained to fight in battle. The victory is ours. And that's what goes on in the heart of the believer that says Christ died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He forever defeated sin and Satan. And he has called me to go into the world and make disciples of all nations and baptize them. And declare to them. And disciple them. I'm not going to sit back. This is my finest hour. We win. We have victory. The knowledge of victory doesn't call me into a life of resignation. It calls me into a life of revolt. We win. 
calls him into a life, I'm going to go to see that he does receive the great reward. You want to know if you're in the Lamb's book of life? I'll take you. Have you prayed the prayer? That's the kind of sweet thing we've learned since we were in Sunday school. I prayed a prayer so I know. I'll tell you how you really know. Do you look like the lamb? Do you talk like the lamb? Do you fight for the lamb? Is the lamb what you breathe and what you, what you want? Is the lamb the glory of Jesus, the one who died on a cross for you? Do you want what he wants? Do you care about looking like him and talking like him? Do you care that there is a great multitude like he said around his throne? Do the things that we find in the word of God to be true about the lamb, are they true of you? And do you want to fight for those things? You want to guarantee that your name's written in the lamb's book? Be like the lamb. Look like the lamb. Fight for the lamb. That's how you know. I sat, I've sat around for hours and hours and hours and hours in Bible school. Talked about how do we know that we know. I, I, I don't know. Wait, we can throw out a whole lot of verses. I'll tell you this. There's a few people that when I look at them, I see the lamb. I'll go, he's in. She's in. Why? She's consumed with the lamb of God. Let's not fight theology talk and... Do we pray it once, pray it twice? Can we get it and lose it, all that? No, just, just lose yourself in the knowledge of the Lamb. Who He is. What He did for you. What He did for the people that have not yet chosen Him. Give your life to the mission of the Lamb. You can guarantee you'll be there. The Lamb's book is filled with people who love the Lamb. That's what Augustine says. Just love God with all your heart and do what you want. If you love God with everything, you'll find yourself in the book. This battle that we're in, it's real. That's why when we sing songs about it, I love it, I love when we sing. Satan is vanquished and Jesus is king. We don't follow a sweet little baby Jesus in a manger. We follow one who has eyes like fire, who sits enthroned forever, dashes the nations to pieces like pottery, whose tongue is like a sword. On his leg and on his thigh, it says the king of all kings. On his head is every crown. That's who we serve. Oh yeah, he came as a baby, but he didn't stay in a manger. We love the baby Jesus. We celebrate the baby Jesus because baby Jesus isn't threatening. We can hold baby Jesus. We can talk about baby Jesus. Most people in America know baby Jesus more than they know victorious Jesus. Why? Well, that we can do with what we want. Baby Jesus doesn't, can't do anything to me. There needs to be some heralders that say, baby Jesus grew up, died on a cross, lived perfectly, redeemed you from sin and Satan. And if you don't choose him, you go to hell forever and ever. He is God, he is big, he is Lord, and you better give your life to him. so harsh the truth and Jesus didn't look at us and say go out go into all the world and sympathize with all the people who have an argument he said go into the world proclaim it Herod, tell them what you've seen and what you've heard be a witness Acts 
one eight says, you'll be my witnesses. There's a lot of people that have witnesses. The witnesses are what they've talked about, what they've seen and they've heard. A lot of people have witnessed some things. People that have gone to Disneyland talk about Mickey Mouse. They've seen and they've heard Mickey. Not really real, but whatever. A witness, someone where you've seen and you've heard. Hey, you know, I've, I've been to Colorado. There's mountains there. Let me tell you about it. It's real. Witness of the gospel says, I was there when he fed the 5,000. I heard the people gasp. And that blind man could see. I saw the gratitude in the eyes of the 5,000 when he fed them. I was shocked and in awe when he rose Lazarus from the dead. I've seen him walk on the wind and the waves. He's walked to us. I've, I've seen him pull coins out of fish. I mean, I've watched the crippled man. He's risen. And when you go, you declare it. When you declare it. And I know this sounds crazy, but I'm going to sit in my spirit. And the Holy Spirit will be so alive. And the believers that I'm going to pray for in John 17, that it'll be better for them that I go because my activity will be so present tense in them. And that's us. That's our story. And the lives that have transformation, the ones that God really changes, the ones that really, I once was lost, now my whole life is consumed with the Lamb. You are the living light of the world. Christ in you. You are the light. No, no, no. All of us kind of corporately have a little flicker of light that gradually, slowly... No, no, don't think that way. You are the light of the world. You. Make it individual, a personal. Yes, all of us together could be a, should be a burning and shining, blazing torch. But I'll tell you this. How many young men and women have I known who justified lethargy because they took it as a corporate light? You're the light at your work. You're the light at your school. You're the light in your city. The knowledge that Jesus wins, that doesn't cause us to refrain and resign. That causes us to lock eyes with each other. Go, we win. Let's go. The Lamb is risen. The Lamb is full. The Lamb is our There may be many. I don't know. I don't know. There may be many that pray a sweet prayer. Live for cars and homes and retirement plans and entertainment and sports. I don't know. I I personally doubt it, but I, I won't go online saying that. Who knows? There may be some of those in heaven. But I'll tell you how you can guarantee it. Love the Lamb. Live for the Lamb. Be on the same mission that the Lamb is on. He didn't come to the world, die on a cross, raised from the dead for you to have a good life. He did it so that we might know Him and declare Him that there might be a great multitude.
John Patton was a famous missionary in the 19th century. He went to New Hebrides, was the area. It's in the South Pacific, leaving Europe. A friend of his, a Christian, said to him, don't go. Come on, man. Rumor has it that the place where you're going is full of cannibals. They'll eat you. John Patton writes, John G. Patton, he's this famous missionary. Now, look back at his buddy, Christian. He said, brother, both of us will die very shortly. And when we stand before God, you may have died going to the grave and your body will be eaten by worms. But mine, as I fearlessly make known the gospel, will be eaten by men. And both of us will stand there with the same bodies in the resurrection. I'd rather be eaten by men declaring the gospel than in lethargy be in the ground and eaten by worms. Jesus said, hey, you want to follow me? sacrifice. That's the gospel. That's what it is. And in our generation, you, here tonight, me, we're weak, we're broken, we don't think we're heroic. We just want to swing the bat and say in our generation, count us in. And it'll be sacrificial that we go, that there would be a great multitude from our generation, of which no one could count from this generation. Sacrifice, we just join with Martin Luther. Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, his truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. just heard one of the speakers from Desperation, a ministry of New Life Church in Colorado Springs. For more information on becoming a Desperation intern, attending one of our conferences, or joining the Desperation National Network for local churches, visit us at desperationonline.com.